Anyway, Matthew chapter 15 is where we are. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, we pick up our study in verse 21, and we'll read through verse 28. So Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So if you're visiting with us uh, today, our prayer is that you would feel welcome as you come through the doors. You'd feel welcome. You'd feel blessed. You'd be blessed today as we study the word together this morning. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying through the gospel of Matthew. Um, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's the way we do it here. And the reason why we do it that is because we want to learn all that we can about Jesus, all that we can from Jesus so that we can enter into the relationship that he desires to have with each one of us. Now, in these verses that we're looking at today, we read that Jesus came to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus leaves the northern region of Israel, the region that's known as the Galilee, and he ventures into Gentile country. And this is the only record we have of Jesus leaving Israel going into predominantly Gentile land. And he probably went there in order to get some alone time with his disciples to, to give him the opportunity uh, to prepare them for the things that are coming. And you might be tempted to think, as you hear me even say that, you might be tempted to think, what are you talking about? It's only chapter 15. Jesus doesn't get crucified until chapter 27. He's got plenty of time to be alone with his, his disciples to prepare them for his death, burial, and resurrection. But the reality is this. Things are really picking up speed at this time. You know, uh, in terms of chronology, things are beginning now to move very, very quickly. And the religious leaders of the day, they've also turned this corner where they're actively they're upping their opposition to Jesus and they're actively looking uh, for ways to put Jesus to death. Um, their intent on silencing his voice, his ministry, his teaching. And Jesus is not able to go any place in Israel without a huge crowd gathering and following him wherever he might go. So in order to get this alone time with his disciples, he's probably thinking, you know, if, if I go up to the region of the Gentiles, you know, at the very least, the religious leaders, they're not going to follow me. And probably, most likely, the Jewish crowd 
isn't going to follow me either. Right? And Mark tells us, Mark 7, 24, that Jesus entered a house and wanted no one to know it. So, you know, he's, he's going in. He's hoping for privacy. He's hoping for this alone time with his disciples. Again, the idea is he wants to prepare them for the events that are quickly coming uh, their way. And we read in verse 22, it says, And behold, a woman came of Canaan from uh, came from that region. A woman of Canaan came from that region. So while Jesus is seeking that privacy with his disciples, there's this woman from Canaan who came uh, from the region. She was a Canaanite. And Mark's gospel tells us a little more specifically, she's a Syrophoenician woman, right? The Phoenicians, they were descendants of the Canaanites. Now, we want to remember that the Canaanites were part of the original inhabitants of the land of, of Israel, the, the promised land, that God had Joshua displaced during the conquest of the promised land. You know, God gave the people of the land 400 years to repent, and they failed to repent, you know, and God knew that their sin, their wickedness, their idolatry, um, it was so great that if he allowed them to remain in the land, the result would be that they would just infect everybody else around them, everybody else in the land with their sin and wickedness. But what happened was during Joshua's conquest of the land, some of the Canaanites, they just slipped out of the promised land and they just went and settled up north in Tyre and Sidon, which we know today as modern day Lebanon, right? So the Canaanite people, very pagan, very, very wicked, right? Uh, so not only is this lady a Canaanite, she's a Gentile, and she's very pagan, very idolatrous, very wicked. That's her heritage. That's her background. And the Canaanites were, were very much the enemy of Israel. Uh, they were against them physically, warring against them. They were against them spiritually. And the Canaanites over and over again drew the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, into idolatry, right? To the point that God had to raise up more than once. He had to raise up and judge uh, the people of Israel. So this lady's nationality, her religious heritage, her background would seem to make her a very unlikely candidate to receive mercy from a Jewish anybody. And even less so, you'd think, right, from a Jewish Messiah and a Jewish Savior. And she's completely, she's totally aware of all of this. She knows it uh, as she comes to Jesus. Now, you, you look at her and you say to yourself, if she understands the history of hatred between her people and the Jewish people, you know, if she's aware of the odds that they're against her, that the, uh, a Jew probably wouldn't have given her the time of day, right? What would even remotely cause her to come to Jesus and risk rejection uh, from him? I mean, she doesn't know anything about Jesus other than, you know, she's heard a few stories of how, how great his power is to deliver people who have been demon-possessed, you know, and that happens to be the condition of her daughter, 
right? So what drives her to Jesus is simply this. It's desperation. She's desperate. This lady is desperate. She's the very picture of desperation. And in verse 22, it says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. This lady, she has a daughter back home. We don't know how old she is, but however old she is, she's demon-possessed, and that severely, the Bible says. I think it's one thing to, for us to talk about demon possession here today. I think it's uh, one thing for us to read about demon possession in the Bible. You know, uh, we want to try to understand biblically all about demon possession. But all of that, I think, is one thing. But it's completely another thing to be demon possessed, right? This lady's daughter is under the control of darkness day in and day out. She's under the control of a demonic spirit that is doing to her and doing through her whatever that demonic spirit wants to do. The most miserable person in a situation like that, of course, is that person who is demon-possessed. But I think a close second would be the parent of that person. You know, put yourself in this lady's shoes. Put yourself in, in, in her shoes as a parent. Day after day, you're watching uh, that demon torture, torment your daughter. And just imagine the feeling of powerlessness. I mean, how just unable to do anything in any way to help her. And it's such a great need. You just, you feel that there's just this force at work upon you as a parent that, you know, as you watch this demon destroy your child, you know, that's the situation that this woman is in. She is helpless and needs to do whatever she possibly can do to get help for her daughter. She might even be feeling guilt over the situation. Uh, you know, the Canaanite culture, it was involved with the worship of Astarte. You know, that was the Canaanite god of sex. That was the Canaanite god of violence, right? It's not un unlikely that as this woman raises her child up in this pagan culture, this false religious environment, that a demon involved in, in that worship, you know, just places his sights on that little girl and he goes after her. You know, kids often bear the brunt of the decisions of their parents. You know, this Canaanite, Canaanite woman, she might be feeling, you know, this terrible guilt as a result of her decisions. And now she's watching her little girl suffer. I mean, just put yourself in this lady's shoes. We need to understand when she comes to Jesus, right? She comes just because she's heard of him. Somewhere, somehow, word has reached this area of Tyre and Sidon that there's this guy named Jesus, you know, who is in Israel. He's cleansing lepers. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people of all of their diseases. And best of all, the best news that this mother hears, again, is he's casting out demons of people 
you know, who have been tormented, inflicted by him. And all of her friends know she has a demon-possessed daughter. All of her relatives know she has a demon-possessed daughter. And they come to her telling her about this Jesus and what he's doing. And then probably that, that hope is dashed very quickly when they say, but what are the odds that you would ever meet this Jesus and receive help from him? I mean, what are the odds that a Jewish Messiah would ever come up here to Tyre and Sidon? Wouldn't it be great if you could take your daughter to him? But how could you do something like that in her condition? You know, I guess you're just out of luck. That's too bad, isn't it? Right? But against all odds, this woman gets word that Jesus has come up to Tyre and Sidon. The Jewish Messiah has come up into Gentile territory. And not only has she heard about um, his miracles and his power, but she's also heard of his great love and compassion for people, especially people in need. So she, she comes. She's hear, heard the claims that he's the Messiah, and she comes with all of these things in her mind, on her heart. You know, they cause her to approach Jesus, and she says, have mercy on me. Oh, Lord, son of David. What she says here reveals to us what she believes. You know what? How often is that the case? The things we say reveal what we believe. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah. She believes that Jesus is the son of David because she addressed him with the title son of David that's reserved for the Messiah. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, first of all, you don't go to him. And secondly, you don't address him as the promised Messiah, right? But she believes in her heart that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has the power to deliver her daughter. If she doesn't believe it, again, she wouldn't have come. But she does believe it. And when the word that he's in her area reaches her ears, man, she makes a beeline for Jesus Christ. And Jesus' response to this woman can be a little bit shocking. You know, the first time you read it, it might be, I don't know, it might be a little shocking the first 10 or 15 times you read it, right? It says in verse 23, but he answered her not a word. In light of this woman's great need, the response of Jesus is silence. He doesn't answer her, not even a word, as she lays out her desperate situation before him. Now, that shocking to us can be because of what we know about Jesus. You know, what we know about his power, what we know about his great love and compassion for people. And it makes you wonder, what's going on here? I mean, why is Jesus ignoring this lady in need? You know, that's not the Jesus we know. We must never look at this scene and view it as Jesus is being rude or being indifferent to this lady, right? Jesus cares about her and her daughter. Yeah, he loves them both. He can, you can never learn anything about Jesus, what Jesus thinks, or what he cares about by taking one frame out of the film, right? What Jesus thinks about this woman is revealed to us in the story. 
Not in a single frame of the film. Jesus knows what he's going to do for this woman and for her daughter. Uh, Acts 15, 18 says, known to God from eternity are all his works. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows how this situation is going to end up. And when Jesus looks at this woman, what he sees in her is great faith, right? And Jesus takes notice of it, and he commends her for that faith in verse 28. But she doesn't recognize it. You know, she doesn't see it. I don't think that she even understands how great her faith is. I know for a fact the disciples didn't understand, uh, didn't recognize how great her faith, faith is. And we wouldn't have a record of how great our faith is and what it has to teach us today, what it has to teach us this morning if it wasn't for the way Jesus handled this situation. The faith that cannot be tested, it's not a faith at all. Jesus knows that this woman has great faith and Jesus is gonna test it to reveal how great it is in all of its beauty. And we must never interpret the first lesson that we learn here is we must never interpret God's silence as a no from him, right? It's nothing more than the silence of God. It doesn't represent a final answer from God in regards to any issue that we bring to him, right? We must always remember God's delays are not his denials. In this account, uh, uh, with this woman coming to Jesus, we see this great faith that we wouldn't have seen, that we wouldn't have appreciated, that, um, you know, we wouldn't have been able to learn from if Jesus hadn't drawn it out of her. So notice the response of the disciples now in verse 23. I mean, this wasn't a great moment in ministry for the disciples. It says, and his disciples came and urged him saying, Send her away for she cries out after us. I mean, the disciples have this great gift of sending people away, uh, don't they? Mark 10, we see the disciples, you know, sending the children away before uh, Jesus can bless them as the parents bring them to Jesus. You know, we just recently studied and saw how the disciples wanted to send the 5,000 away before Jesus fed, fed them. And uh, I mean, the disciples, they had this habit, it seems, of sending people away just minutes before Jesus is about to do something amazing, something tremendous. To the disciples, this woman was really nothing more than a nuisance. I mean, she was just, you know, an irritant probably more than anything else. And to be fair to the disciples, though, it's not clear in the original language if the disciples are saying, give her what she wants and be rid of her, or just get rid of her. It's not clear. Either way, their response was not uh, motivated. It uh, doesn't come from compassion. It seems like it was a response that was, you know, coming from an irritation more than anything else. And, and this should be a lesson for us, right? We need to be careful. Often our responses to people's needs aren't always coming from a heart of love and compassion that we should have as Christians, right? We need to encourage people. 
to run to Jesus, to look to him as the only answer to their problem. In verse 24, we read, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, in the original language, it's not clear if Jesus is speaking now to the woman or if he's speaking to the disciples. I'm inclined to think that Jesus is responding to what the disciples said. And I think what they said was give her what she wants and get rid of her. And Jesus is responding to that. You know, Jesus came into the world to die on the cross, to take the sins of the world upon him in order that um, all mankind might be saved. And he came to save the Jew and the Gentile alike. He loves both Jew and Gentile. But before he uh, broadens his ministry to the Gentile, his initial ministry was to the Jew as their Messiah. Um, you know, as Jesus ministered to Israel, it was nothing for him to, you know, uh, heal a Gentile. And it was never misunderstood by any of the Jews, uh, anyone in the crowd there. No Jew would look at Jesus and, um, you know, after healing hundreds of Jews and a few Gentiles along the way, none of the, none of the Jews would be threatened by it. You know, they wouldn't be tempted to think, well, you know, he's leaving us Jews behind and, and uh, now he's focusing on the Gentiles. But the Jesus, but because now Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile dominated region, if he begins healing Gentiles right and left, what, what's going to happen is he's going to uh, cause this huge Gentile crowd to gather, to begin following him every place he goes. And then the Jews would be tempted to say, you know, he's abandoned us. He's abandoned Israel. He's gone to the Gentile. And they would come to the conclusion that, in fact, Jesus was not their Messiah. Now, again, the Old Testament scriptures, they prophesied that when the Messiah did come, he would have a concern for the Gentiles, but his primary ministry would be to the nation of Israel. And it was in this order of priority prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. This is what Jesus is protecting. So, you know, you look at this woman's response and overhearing what Jesus had to say, like I said, I think to the disciples, verse 25, then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. You'd think after first encountering silence uh, from Jesus, what could be worse? <laughs> you know, uh, then you hear Jesus speaking to the disciples. That seems to be a total disregard for her, for her situation. You'd think that would be enough to discourage her to give up and quit. I mean, honestly, wouldn't that be enough to make you want to give up? Uh, I think that's what happens for a lot of Christians. You know, that's what's behind throwing in the towel. You know, first it's silence from God and a misunderstanding that he doesn't care. But do you know why this woman doesn't quit? She hasn't heard a no yet, right? Some people, when they hear anything remotely resembling a, a no, you know, it's over for them, right? But desperation needs to hear an absolute no before it's a no. She approached Jesus with her desperate need and with a passionate hope and an absolute refusal 
to be discouraged. And in reality, Jesus hasn't said no, at least not as it relates to her need. And she's not ready to give up until he does say no. She's heard a lot of things, but she hasn't heard a no from Jesus. So she continues to press in. It's like she says, I appreciate how delicate things can be, you know, with that Jewish and Gentile thing that you're dealing with. But Lord, could you please help me? If things couldn't get any worse, we read Jesus' response directed to her in regards to her plea for help in verse 26, right? But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Again, the first few times you read this, you're just like, I don't believe it. It's so shocking. But it's not what it sounds like. Jesus, of course, is not calling her a dog in a way that the Pharisees would have addressed the Gentiles, right? The Greek word that Jesus uses is a little pet. It's a puppy, right? Not that vicious, um, savage, filthy, disease-ridden dog that's terrorizing the streets, eating all the garbage, right? In Jesus's illustration, he's likening uh, the situation to like um, maybe, you know, when your family gathers together, for uh, dinner. Your mom puts the stew down on the table and she dishes a bowl of stew for everybody around the table, hands them all a slice of fresh baked bread. And there's that little dog, you know, that's under the table, wagging his tail, just waiting patiently. You know, one thing about dogs is they appreciate mealtime uh, probably more than humans do. You know, uh, but you know how it is. The kids, they're sitting there at the table. They're playing with their food, you know. They're uh, not very interested in, in what they're about to uh, eat, either because, you know, they don't like it. It's broccoli again. Or because they just ate a box of Oreos 10 minutes before uh, dinner. The kids are sitting there. They're pushing their food around with their plate in hopes, you know, to make it look like they've eaten enough so they can still get dessert. All right? You know how it is. Kids playing with their food. But the dog, I mean, his eyes are glued. His eyes are glued on each fork full of food that you raise to your mouth just in hopes that something would uh, fall from your fork so that he can snatch it up long before you have a chance to say, uh-oh, you know. Um, usually the food doesn't fall from the table. It doesn't actually make it to the floor before the, the dog's already gobbled it up. You know, the children... In Jesus' illustration, he's, he's referring to the, to the house of Israel. And the little dogs in Jesus' uh, illustration is, is a reference to the Gentiles. Now, that's something that people can take offense to these days. What? Now, I happen to be Gentiles. Jesus calling me a dog? You know, I don't think I like that. But you put yourself back in time a little bit. Honestly, the way the Gentiles lived in comparison to the way God's people uh, lived, it's like the Gentiles, it's like they did live like dogs, right? They engaged in all kinds of horrible and disgusting things. I mean, they lived like animals. That's just, that's just the way it was. We live in a day of political correctness. You know, everything's equal, right? 
your view of right and wrong is no more right than his view of right and wrong, no matter what his views are. Doesn't matter. Everything's equal. Everything's right today. Today, everyone wants to give equal weight to every idea, thought, or action, no matter what kind of person it produces, no matter what kind of neighborhood it produces, no matter what kind of society it produces, no matter what kind of culture it produces. But the fact of the matter is not all things are equal, right? Not all philosophies are equal in this life. Not all lifestyles are equal. And, and they're certainly not equal in the eyes of God. The fact of the matter was even a ritualistic, legalistic observance of the Old Testament law by the Jewish people produced the quality of life that the Lord could look at and say, well, that looks something like uh, something that's worthy of a person that was created in the image of God. It looks something uh, you know, like you know, a person who claims to be a child of God. But the pagans of the ancient Gentile world, uh, even the world today, you know what? The paganism makes animals a people. It gives them an excuse for living on the level of an animal, doing whatever our instincts tells us to do. This is what Jesus is talking about. There was a world of difference between the observant Jew and the way the Gentiles live in general. Uh, and certainly the way the Syrophoenicians lived there in Tyre and Sidon. The woman's reply in verse 27, it's very interesting. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. We need to notice that she doesn't take offense at what Jesus says, right? She was not offended even a little bit by what he was saying. She understood completely what Jesus was saying. And uh, we shouldn't be offended by what Jesus said either, right? She does something really wonderful here. She takes Jesus's illustration of the dinner table, the children around the table, the dogs that are present there under the table. And she basically says, Lord, I'm not asking for a seat at the table. I'm not asking for the food or the miracles or all the things that you've been doing uh, for the nation of Israel. I'm just asking for a crumb. I'm just asking for a little bit off their table, a little bit of what it is that they're ignoring. I just like a little bit that falls from the table. That's all. You know, the deliverance of her daughter was was what she was asking for. And it was really nothing more than just a crumb compared to what Jesus had been doing in Israel. You know, the number of people that Jesus has healed and taught and delivered and blessed. And she's, she's just asking here, she's saying, if you, Lord, were to deliver my daughter, it would diminish your um, ability or your power uh, to bless the Jewish people, even in the least. You'd still have an overabundance of power to continue to meet the needs and deliver your people in every way they need you to deliver and bless them. And Jesus' response to her 
Verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And from a distance, and this is really important to notice, from a distance, Jesus didn't need to be physically present, but from a distance, he delivers that little girl from her torment. And it's, we read, and her daughter was healed from that very hour, Matthew says. Mark's gospel, Mark 7, 29 through 30, it says, then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. When she got home, she found her daughter freed from that demon, just as Jesus had promised, right? One of the reasons we have this story recorded for us is to show us the type of faith that prevails with God, right? That's really the lesson behind uh, the events here. The type of faith that blesses Jesus, the type of faith that's pleasing to the Lord. If, if you think about it, you know, I think this, I think faith can be a little bit confusing to Christians at times. I can remember uh, struggling to understand what faith is all about because it's not something tangible. It's not something that you can, you know, measure with a measuring stick or, or weigh on a scale. It's not something that you can touch or hold or put in a box or a, a jar. And the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, you know what? I want to know what it is then so that I can be pleasing to God. So I found the biblical definition of faith found in Hebrews 11, uh, 1. And, and I read it and it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I don't know about you, but that didn't clear things up for me. <laughs> I was like, okay, that, that's of no help. Like many Christians, you know what? I wanted to know. What do I pray about? And what do I not pray about? What do I keep praying about? And what do I not keep praying about? And there are a lot of ideas in the body of Christ. A lot of people voicing their opinions about uh, these kinds of things. There are those that hold an extreme position on one side of a topic. And there are those that hold an extreme position on the other side. You know, And then there's everyone else that's in between those two extremes right? There are people who give a divine authority to faith, right? That obligates God to answer our requests as we, as, we, as we request it. They say, if you have enough faith, then God must answer that prayer request. If you have enough faith uh, that God would make, if we had enough faith that God would make us rich materially, then he has to make us rich, if we have enough faith that he will make our bodies well, then he's obliged to heal us. He must do whatever we, re we request because of our faith. And these people, they make faith and prayer a means to manipulate God to get their will done in earth and is in heaven the way they see fit. Instead of God's will being done on earth, as it is in heaven. So you have this big group of people on, on this one side, and they're very, very vocal about faith. And then on the other side, the other end of the spectrum, you have people that give very little place to faith, right? 
they love the Lord and they're on their way to heaven. There's never any question about that, right? But they never take steps of faith. They've never uh, actively exercised faith since they got saved. And, and they just figure, you know what? God's almighty and he has a plan and he's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish and we're just along for the ride. So why bother praying about any situation that we face? Just make a decision and go for it. So a person can look at these ideas, these opposing ideas and teachings within the body of Christ regarding faith, and they can begin to wonder, you know, how in the world am I to view faith, right? Can my faith actually change a situation? Can my faith influence God at all? Or is God just going to do whatever he wants to do and my faith doesn't matter at all? You know, what is it? Well, here in this story of this woman, we see the faith that gains Jesus' attention, his admiration, and he commends it. One of the things that makes this account so very valuable to us is that her faith and her prayer is exercised in an area where God does not give a clear promise what he would do in this situation or that situation. For example, you know, uh, you can take the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us. And you can take that promise and know that that's going to be the final word in any situation that we face. God will never abandon us. That promise, you know, you can hold on to it because it's a sure promise. It's an absolute promise. It's always going to be that way in every situation. But what about the situations in life? Like the one uh, these women face where there's no sure promise of God that he will do either this or that in regards to what it is that you're faith, uh, facing. This woman, she has no promise that Jesus will deliver her demon-possessed daughter. She has no promise that God would even deliver any demon-possessed daughter or son from a Gentile, right? There's no promise like that. He could do it. He may not do it, you know? Uh, there are so many things we face in life where God could go either way. Well, this event teaches us what our prayers and our faith is to be like in order to have an influence in those situations where there is no clear promise of God or when we face a situation where God could go either way. It shows us how we're to exercise our faith in those types of situations. So now the lesson from these verses, now they're very valuable to us because we find ourselves in those types of situations all the time. Seems like, I don't know, sometimes at least, but for me, it seems like all the time. So I'd like to give you a list of characteristics that we learn from this lady's faith, right? That we need, I believe, to seek to apply to our lives. If you're taking notes, the first one, a faith that prevails with God is a faith that comes to Jesus. She comes to Jesus, right? That's the first step. That's where everything starts. That's where everything begins. No one's faith is greater or stronger than what they're placing their faith in. And you can't place your faith in anything greater than Jesus because there's nothing greater than Jesus. Secondly, a faith that prevails with God is a faith that isn't afraid to come to God in the midst of desperation. 
Desperation brings a lot of people to God. There are a lot of people who never give God a second thought in their life except for a desperate situation you know, occurring in their life. Often it's when a, a person faces an impossible situation in their life, humanly speaking, that that's when they're willing to seek out Jesus for help. Very often a person hits a place in their life, uh, you know, maybe they've been raised in a church. So they have some knowledge of Jesus Christ tucked away, uh, stored away in the back of their minds. Maybe they've been witnessed uh, over the years by friends and family. Uh, you know, they've, they've shared Christ with them. And, and they know that they should turn to Jesus. And, and for years they've known it, but they've never done it. But now, you know, there's such, they're in such deep yogurt. They see that they're in such deep trouble. They're willing to s- seek them out. But when that happens, a lot of times what happens is all of a sudden they feel guilty about it. You know, what kind of person am I? I've known for years I should turn to Jesus. And now that I'm in hot water... You know, I'm such a hypocrite, right? Turning to him now, especially since I never turned to him when things were going well. You know, if you're that type of person, God's word to you this morning is this. Don't overthink it. You know, just come. Just turn to Jesus. Come to him. This woman just came to Jesus and wasn't afraid to come to him in the midst of her desperation. She knew that it was only Jesus that could help her, so she just came. I don't know many situations that, that you know, seem to be more impossible to deal with than when God gives us children. You know what? Kids, uh, no matter what the age, they have a way of, of creating desperate situations in your life where you just gotta run to Jesus. Right? For me, no matter how hard I try, I feel like I'm always failing. You know, Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. Lord, lead and guide and protect my kids in spite of me. You know, I can imagine, I, I, I couldn't imagine raising kids apart from God, especially in today's culture. You know, many times a person will come to the Lord like, like this woman when they sense that they've lost control of their kids or of their home. Uh, when, they, when, when there's a demonic oppression or a demonic possession around their kids, around their homes, around their, the people they, they love. God uses desperate situations, even today, to draw people to himself. Thirdly, the faith that prevails with God is a faith that comes to Jesus with the knowledge they have of him. Right? This lady, she's not a Bible scholar. She doesn't know anything about the Old Testament, you know, she's probably never even heard that there are Ten Commandments. She doesn't know anything about God's Word. She's never heard of the Beatitudes. She never heard the Sermon on the Mount. You know, there's mountains of information uh, regarding Jesus that she has no idea of. All she knows is what she's heard about Jesus, that he's a Jewish Messiah. And she comes to him armed only with that knowledge of him. That's it. You know what? The lesson is don't wait until you're a Bible expert before you come to Jesus. Come to him with what it it is that you know of him. If someone has told you that Jesus loves you, 
if they've told you, you know, about the miracle that he performed in their lives and they shared, uh, you know, this is what God wants to do in your life. You know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he wants to cleanse you of your sins and make you a new creation. Jesus is the savior of the world and he wants to save you too. You know, take what you, you do know, what you have heard about Jesus and come to him. Let him fill in the blanks later. Yeah, that's what he did for me. I just came. And that's what this woman did. She just came to Jesus with what it was that she knew about him. Fourthly, a faith that prevails with God is a faith that comes to Jesus no matter what your national uh, or religious heritage is. Right? This woman, she's a Canaanite. She's a pagan among pagans. Right? What she has been into in the name of religion would make us all cringe. If, if we knew the details, because of all the racial history that's gone on between the Jews and the Canaanites, right? She could have had a tremendous amount of racial prejudice, right? She could have had these preconceived ideas that would have prevented her from coming to a Jewish Messiah. But she didn't allow that to keep her away from coming to Jesus. She laid it all down to come to Jesus, just like every other person in need has to do. And that's a very important point today. You know what? The Palestinian, the only way of salvation for the Palestinian is the same way of salvation for the guy down the street in your neighborhood, right? The Muslim is saved the same way the Catholic is saved. It's by placing their faith in a Jewish Messiah. It's by coming to a Jewish savior of the world. And a person has to put down whatever prejudices he may, she may have, any preconceptions or everything else and anything else that would hinder them from entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The fifth thing, a faith that prevails with God is a faith that comes to Jesus despite a past lifestyle or a sinful background. Right? This woman wasn't raised in the church. She wasn't raised in a synagogue. Again, she doesn't know the Ten Commandments. She doesn't know the law of Moses. You know, uh, Had she known it, it would have kept her out of all kinds of troubles. Right? She had a very idolatrous uh, background. And she didn't allow that to keep her from coming to the Lord. It's very often when a person sees a need to turn to Jesus, it's then the devil comes and begins to whisper in, in their ear you might want to think twice about this decision because uh, he's not going to receive you. He only receives church people, not people like you, right? After all the things that you've done, don't risk the rejection. He only receives people who are worthy and good, not like you, okay? Well, guess what? No one is good but God, the Bible says, right? No one's worthy of salvation. We're never to look at salvation of uh, God's salvation on, you know, or his willingness to help us in any way in light of my history or in light of whether I've been good or bad. He encourages us to come to him just the way we are. That's the way we come. In doing so, we come to grace. Amazing, wonderful, overwhelming grace. Grace that's greater than all of our sin.
Number six, a faith that prevails with God is a faith that doesn't misinterpret silence. And we do that, don't we? I do. Sometimes we can pray and pray about something and all we get is silence, right? And immediately we're tempted to think his silence is no. Listen, silence is silence. That's all it is, right? It's not a no. It's not a yes. It's just silence. Sometimes when we pray to the Lord, we'll hit silence simply because he's developing our faith, just like he's doing for the Syrophoenician woman, right? He knows that there's, that there's this greater faith in you and I. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to work to draw it out. I don't honestly think Jesus would have hit this woman with silence if she didn't have the faith to handle it. And we see she did have the faith to handle it, right? Jesus, you know, if, if, if we're hit with silence, when we come to him with a sincere request, you know, when we come to the Lord in prayer, operating in faith, he knows whether or not you have the, the ability to endure the silence. He's not going to give us more than what we can handle. You know, sometimes we hit silence because the timing's not right. You know, I'm on a time schedule all the time, man. My, the watch is my, my enemy. Well, I got to be here. I got to go there. And, you know, I come to God sometimes with that attitude. You know, Lord, uh, in the next 48 hours, we got to make things happen. And I think now's the best time, Lord. And you know what? I'll even come prepared with pie charts and graphs. You know, I'll lay out a presentation to the Lord to convince him that this is the right time, you know, and I'll lay out to God uh, my recommendations. You know, this is the right time for these reasons, and I'll expect him to work on me on my behalf. But you know, often the Lord, he says, no, Gare, you know what? I know the perfect timing. The perfect timing is going to be in two weeks or maybe two months, maybe two years, right? And I'll just get silence from him until the time is right. This woman didn't misinterpret the silence to mean no. Uh, she didn't allow it to discourage her for, to keep from pressing in further, right? Her faith was tested, and our faith also will be tested in the same way. Seven. If you're taking notes, a faith that prevails with God is a faith that will not allow itself to be discouraged by the shenanigans of Jesus' disciples. I mean, the disciples and their treatment of this woman, I mean, it was tremendously rude. You know, and I, I think it's a little bit funny, you know, after a few years hanging out with Jesus, they think the lady's calling after them for help, right? And they say, they say as much, verse 23, send her away for she cries out after us. I wonder if that was Peter that said it. Whatever. She wasn't looking for the help of the disciples. You know, she was coming to Jesus. But the disciples' pride and their arrogance, their condescension and their treatment of her, it was just terrible in my opinion. It was unnecessary. Faith recognizes that Jesus' disciples do not always represent Jesus the way they should. And I think that that's so important. I'm going to say it again. Faith recognizes that Jesus' disciples do not always represent him the way they should. God blessed this woman because 
she will not accept that what she's seeing in the disciples of Jesus means that that is what she will receive from Jesus. She stays very focused on Jesus and will not conclude anything about Jesus based on uh, the reaction of the disciples to her plea, right? Jesus represents Jesus all the time, 100% of the time. No one else does. And this lady, again, God bless her. She's like a bulldog. She places her focus. She fixes her eyes on Jesus. She attaches her expectation to him and him alone. I think it's important for those of us to know, uh, those of us that know the Lord, to never allow the faithlessness of Jesus' disciples. And they are faithless here. Right? We're never to allow the faithlessness of even Jesus' disciples to move us from a position of faith in him on any particular situation that we're facing. Sometimes God's people can be the most discouraging when you're holding on to a promise or believing God to move uh, in a certain situation in your life. We need to understand Jesus is Jesus and disciples are disciples, right? Number eight, a faith that prevails with God is a faith, uh, is a faith that will test our pride. Verse 26, when Jesus talked of the little children of Israel and made references to the dogs, that could have been taken as an insult, right? Jesus talking about the Jews as little children and the Gentiles as dogs, I mean, that tested her pride. And the question is, is she going to be offended by Jesus's assessment of her? Or is she going to respond in humility saying, yes, Lord, I know, I know I'm like a dog and, and I, know, I know I'm nowhere near, you know, worthy of the, even the smallest crumb that would fall from your table. I'm not worthy of the least amount of mercy and grace that you're willing to show me today. I know it, Lord. I know it. This is why that's important. Everyone, every one of us, everyone in the world must humble themselves to receive salvation because God identifies all of us as dogs, right? We're all sinners, right? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sometimes when you're sharing Christ, you know, with somebody, you might say something like, you'll have to confess that you're a sinner. You'll have to confess your sins in order to receive Jesus as your, your Savior. And I don't know if, if it's ever happened to you, man. I've heard it a bunch of times. What are you talking about? I'm not a sinner. You know, uh, they're offended at God's assessment of them. I've, I've never had a problem of God's assessment of me as a sinner. I knew I was a sinner. You know what? <laughs> Tell me something I don't know. But some people have a problem with God's assessment of them. We all have to come to God for salvation. We all have to, you know, we all are going to be confronted with God's uh, assessment of us. We're all sinners. And we don't deserve the smallest measure of God's mercy and grace when we come to Jesus for salvation, right? We need to come in faith not deterred by his assessment for us, uh, of us. Faith in his great love for us. 
for us. That's the faith that blesses God. Nine, this is the last on my list. A faith that prevails with God is a faith that perseveres. It doesn't quit. It doesn't give up. Even when, you know, it seems like the deadline has passed in a particular situation. You know, faith recognizes that God has a lot of things going on in this situation. It's not just about him fulfilling my request in the moment. It recognizes that God is doing uh, lots of things, you know, but maybe he's delaying to accomplish a greater work of developing in us a more godly character, right? While nurturing and drawing out a greater faith that he knows that is within us, right? Well, you know what? How long do we pray about something? How long do we exercise faith in a particular situation? Well, the answer is until God answers our prayer or until he releases us uh, from praying that prayer. He can do either of those and, and make himself very clear to each one of us in regards to these things, right? I think it's interesting when you look at faith in the Bible. Uh, honestly, I wish that there was a formula regarding faith. It's just the type of person I am. You know what? I want a cookbook. I want a, you know, ingredient A and ingredient B gets me product C, right? I want that. You know, I want to know what I need to do to get the end result. But the problem is with that, it wouldn't be very long until I started doing things without any thought towards God, right? I would start thinking of God more like a genie, somebody that's, again, maybe obliged or a slave to my outward efforts. God isn't interested in that with us, right? He wants a relationship with us. So God works in our lives in a way that he's, that he's all, that he always keeps us in the realm of faith, right? And it keeps us in a relationship with him. It can't be a formula, right? It keeps us dependent on him. I have a quote in my Bible. It says, and it's, it's precious to me. It says, independence is the essence of sin, but dependence is the genius of Christianity. You know that? It's true. Man, dependence is the greatest thing. What this woman's encounter with Jesus offers us are some very important principles, some real-life things that God noticed and commended in regards to her faith as she approaches the Lord Jesus Christ during this time of great need, right? And I think that these verses are recorded for us because God wants us to apply these principles to our lives as believers. I believe the Lord wants us to be aware of the faith that prevails with him, that gets traction with him, the faith that blesses him, the faith that's worthy of him, right? A faith that will impact the desperate situations that some of us have walked into this room with today. You know, a faith that for maybe others of us, right, we're gonna need to draw on in the future because desperation comes into all of our lives uh, from time to time. And my prayer, my prayer is that this portion of scripture will be something that each of us would take time to camp on, you know, take time to think through and apply to our lives so that when we're hit, when we hit that place, right, we can 
we can know how to maintain a prop, proper perspective in times of silence, in times of, of difficulties, when we're crying out to God, and, and again, all we get is silence, right? Because all of us are going to face a situation in our walks where the Lord uh, seeks to work greater faith in us and draw greater faith uh, from our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray that your word would just wash over us and it would just implant in our hearts. Lord, that we would meditate on, on this portion of scripture. We would think through where our faith is in relationship to this lady's faith. What does our faith look like in relationship to the faith that she displayed, that blessed you, that, that you commended? Lord, how do we grow? What areas do we need to grow in? Lord, I just pray that, God, your word would just speak powerfully to us today. And, God, that there would be an eternal change that would be wrought in our hearts today because of our time in your word. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.